Hi, this is Rob Hartnett, author of It's All Possible, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. Joining me today is Rob Hartnett. Rob started his career at KPMG and has worked in senior management roles at global organizations such as Apple, Publicus Mojo, and Hewlett Packard, where he won the coveted Asia Pacific High Achiever Award. At Miller Hyman Group, he was an advisory partner and was nine times consecutive Global Presidents Club winner. Rob's a champion sailor. He holds a Bachelor of Business and a postgraduate in Applied Finance and Investment. He's an independent executive director in leadership with the John Maxwell team and is also certified in DISC. Rob is here to talk about his book, It's All Possible, How to Lead an Epic Life and Unleash the High-Performance Hero Within You. Welcome, Rob. Hey, Bill. How are you going? Going well. So glad to have you on. When you were growing up, Rob, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Uh, probably the, the one of the people that really inspired me was a guy, a local Australian uh, entrepreneur called Bill Curry. Bill certainly encouraged me and inspired me in, in many ways. How so? Well, he, I met him through my chosen sport of yachting, and I was quite young at the time, and he was a commodore of our local yacht club. He wasn't only the commodore, he also was an incredibly great sailor. He was a very good family man. He had a very successful business and entrepreneur, and he was just such an, what I would call today, Bill, an authentic leader. At the time, I didn't know that I was too young, but he was a real authentic leader, and he went on to lead in Australia his own business. He led Yachting Australia. He led Yachting Victoria. He ended up being the president of, of Rotary. He was just one of those leaders that people flock to, what we call a level five leader. They could transition industries and transition sports, and you just wanted those people in a leadership position. Is that from Jim Collins, level five? It's actually John Maxwell's level five, so he's level one, three to five. But uh, I know that Jim and uh, and John are very close, so it's probably some shared some shared knowledge. If it's the top level, that's what we're talking. <laughs> that's it. It's top level. Yeah. I could hear already ways that your relationship with Bill Curry influenced you with your became your love of yachting and your love of business and helping leaders develop. Can you remember a specific example of what maybe early in your career when you were making a decision and you knew that there was some influence or guidance from what you learned from the values that Bill Curry shared with you or some of the lessons? Well, yeah, it, it's there's many actually, Bill, because I got to know Bill quite well. And in fact, even my wife knew Bill. And in fact, uh, my wife and I had a, had a photography business for some time. And uh, we actually used to go out in Bill's big motor launch and do a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, video and uh, camera work from Bill's boat. So I got to know him quite well from a personal side and also more on the business side and how, how he built his family up. And so many, many times in my life, I would think, how would Bill do this or what would Bill do and how would Bill approach that? And he, he's passed away now, but uh, I still do that. I still think what would, you know, what would a guy like Bill Curry do in this type of situation? I think it's always nice to reflect back on that and say, is, that, is this the right thing? And he was a person that would do what was right, not what was legal. So you came to think about possibility thinking and really epitomize that in It's All Possible. What led you to 
the point where you said, I've got to put this into a book. I'd always had a number of the notes of the book and I'm a big note taker, huge. I got a lot of journals, probably like you, lots of journals, lots of notes. And I had a lot of things there and I was looking at my next book and it had been 12 years since I wrote my previous one, which is around uh, small business, business growth called Small Business, Big Opportunity. And that had done really well, but it'd been 12 years. And speaking with my publisher, I had a number of ideas and she said, well, which is the one you really want to do? And I said, you know, I really want to do It's All Possible because I just feel at the moment, and this was before COVID, at the moment, people just need that not only need inspiration, they need a, they need to be equipped and they need a pathway forward. And I'm just a, you know, a regular guy. I grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne in Australia and, and, you know, my parents were from a small business background and all my family, a small business background and, and I've achieved some, you know, interesting things. Some, some would say remarkable things over my career to date. And, uh, but I'm, I'm nothing special, but there was a strategy I followed and I did always follow and, and, and also just admired people, but not admired them actually went in to find out what does successful entrepreneurs do athletes do just anybody. There was a system and I, and, I, and it was a system that I wanted to share with people. So when you think about the system that you use to achieve in your own life, what were some of the steps of that system? Well, they really are the, the absolute, the steps for me were around vision, strategy, and action. That were, the, that were the three, right? So vision, strategy, and action were the three that I always had. Now, I started to write the book around that and then realized that I'd actually missed the major step that I inherently had because I'd come through, I think, sport really early on. So attitude and mindset was something I already had. That doesn't mean to say I don't have down days and I don't need mindset maintenance, I do. But I kind of already had the attitude and mindset. So my focus had always been, okay, what's the vision? What's my strategy to get there? What action am I going to take? And then I break the action part up. And what I realized was that actually most people's attitude and mindset sucked. A lot of leaders, their attitude and mindset sucked. And, you know, people were working for them. So I actually realized that was super important was to have your attitude and mindset right. Because if you've got a small attitude and your mindset small, you'll just have small vision. And no one wants a small vision. You know, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing with a small vision. So we wanted people with big visions. We want people to think what they could they do, not what can they do, what actually could, what is possible for them to do it. So that was the reason behind it. So share with me an example. I'm sure you have conversations with people day in and day out who are looking to execute on a vision and a strategy and put things into place. And if you come across someone who has a, a rotten mindset, what are some questions or ways that you begin to approach that to help them become aware of the impact and then to make changes? Because we really can't change someone else's mindset, can we? Not without permission and interest and desire on their part. Yeah, I, I think there's probably two elements to that. One is uh, it's really hard to change someone's mindset, but you can with people around them. And so I think motivation to me is 50% internal, 50% the people you're hanging out with. And you would know that from the sport that you've done as well, that when you're hanging out with really good, say, tennis players, or in my case, I'm doing a lot of cycling these days, when you're in the right posse, you're in the right group, uh, it, it lifts you and changes your perspective. And you start to go, actually, you know what? I think I could do that. Or I hadn't even thought about that. And they're the kind of people that you need to be round. And so I think that's an important part is getting people to see what others do. And so quite often, I remember having someone in, in business that I was working with, um, Jeff, and he, he had a great idea for his business. Uh, and I said, you should go global with it. He was like, oh, just, it would never go global. He, he never really traveled much. He couldn't see how it could be. He just didn't, he just didn't know what he didn't know. And so to expose him to that, I, I just brought him along to a few, um, to a couple of business seminars that I was running that actually had people there that had taken their products global and had expanded into markets in Asia, for example. And once he was hanging around with them and he'd been to a couple of business breakfasts, it wasn't just me telling him. There was a bunch of people like him 
that had done things that then he could see. And all of a sudden, these conversations started to change from, oh, I wonder what this would be like in this language. I wonder how it might work in Taiwan. I wonder if we can get manufacturing in. And as soon as that, I just knew the light bulb had gone on. And so it was really the people that he was around. It's not an instant thing, but it was over a period of months. He started, you could just start to see that the mind had been switched on to what was possible for him. And he wasn't limited to his to a current market that he knew previously. Isn't that fascinating? Because you're able to now hear him initiating those conversations and bringing up those topics because he's now in the possibility zone, as you write about in the book. Isn't that right? Correct. Yeah. He's now got in the possibility zone of what's actually possible for him with a bit of effort, what's possible for others. And this is where it gets into. Sometimes we get into, oh, that's possible for other people. Oh, because those other people have got money. Those other people went to that school. Those other people have got those connections. And so we, we, we but that's even a good step. You go, okay, so, so, so you don't think you can do it, but it's possible for others. So it is possible. Uh, yeah, it is, yeah, I can see how it is possible, right? So you've now made the next step. Okay, so it would be possible for you to do that. And you start to get the motion going. And you just, it's just the neurons, you know, and the neurons start to fire, they start to wire. And we start to get into better habits. We start to ask better questions. We start, now you'll find that with every great leader and every great successful anybody anywhere is such a great master of asking questions. So one of the things that I have found with a lot of the business leaders I've been in contact with is now we are in six months into the pandemic lockdown. People are still struggling or, or being aware of new struggles with their teams and bringing people together. What's the difference between acknowledging the struggle and having a bad attitude about the struggle? What's the impact of realizing that you have a choice about that? It's dramatic. It's absolutely dramatic. Look, at the end of the day, nobody wants to follow a whiner. Nobody goes, I really want to follow that person over. They're so negative and they're such a whinger. They're, they're, my, they're my people, right? No one wants to do that. You only follow those people because you have to, because they're paying you or they've got a better job title. But it is so depressing as opposed to a leader who says, this is really new for us. I don't know when it's going to end, but here's what we're going to do. And there's a, a lot of people say, you know, hope is not a strategy. And that's true. It isn't a strategy, but I tell you what, it's a really good gift to give people if you're a leader. Give people hope and optimism, but based on your learning, your research, and your understanding, and then lead. It's what I call the three L's. You know, learn, listen, lead. And you know, you don't have to have the answers. And saying I don't know is actually a perfectly good thing at this point in time because frankly, you don't know, and neither do I, and neither do you, Bill. You don't know if it's gonna be another six months, three months, we don't know. But what we do know is there is a way out. There will always be a way out. And you've got to give your people hope and optimism. If you can do that, I, I'm just, I'm seeing dramatic, literally dramatic changes in exactly the same businesses and exactly the same markets, but the level of leadership is different and it's chalk and cheese between the outcomes and how, how well their people are feeling. Well, Rob, one of the other things that's true is that as leaders are grappling with these issues, there's a lot of intentionality that's required. And in your book, you talk about desire, discipline, and determination. What's happening if people have only two of the three and they're missing one of those components in order to follow through on their commitments, in order to do it either with promises they make to themselves or even promises they make to others? Yeah, the three are really important. So the, the number one is you desire. You've got to want it. You've got to really want it and understand what that is. Because the, if you don't have that, if you just have the discipline then it's just going to get boring and get tough. So the desire is the most important thing. You got to really want it because if you want it, you'll find a way. And as they say, if you know your why, then the what becomes easy. 
So having that that desire for it is really is really critical. And do you still desire it? Even in this market, do you still desire it? And I remember a, a good friend of mine's Alyssa Camplin, and she's a, a multiple Olympian. And she and her whole her whole goal as a young girl was to win the Olympic medal. She didn't actually have a sport. She hadn't chosen that yet. She was actually, I just want to win gold medal. That's that was her goal. And so she went through a whole number of sports. And the one thing she taught me was, Rob, if you don't have the desire and the passion for that sport, you'll never succeed because it's the, it's 5 a.m. in the morning, it's raining outside, are you going to go train? So she said, you know, the great line she has is, what do you look like when no one's looking? What are you doing when no one's looking? And so if you don't have that, that's why she gave up on a number of sports. And she was good at some of these sports. You know, she became a national champion in some of them, but she still didn't have the real desire for that sport. And it wasn't until she got into skiing, aerial skiing. In fact, when she decided to lock in to become the aerial skier, she didn't even know how to ski. And then seven years later, she won gold. That's amazing. That really does talk about her hunger and her desire to be on that Olympic podium. Then everything else follows once she knew her why, once she zeroed in on her discipline and allowed her determination to follow that path and that dream of hers. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that really, uh, that, that, you know, I spent a lot of time with Alyssa was, and how we met, was her system was without doubt the most robust system for that seven-year plan that I've seen of any athlete. And I've met a lot of good athletes, but her seven-year one down to the minute detail was extraordinary. And uh, it's just, so that's that, you know, that's that discipline part that was so important because again, with any of those three, as you mentioned, if you don't have, you got to have all three. You can't just have two out of three. It's not like a meatloaf song, two out of three ain't bad, right? It's like you got to have all three. Is there anything else you learned from working with Alyssa that you could share with us about how to tune up or up-level the plans that you make in order to create that level of intentionality and I guess momentum to help carry you through to success? Yeah, look, there was a number of things uh, working with her and also working with um, a number of other athletes as well. You know, one of the one of the things that's really important for, for leaders, uh, leaders of any teams is to enable, enable your people to learn and experiment and fail forward, you know, and so... I challenge you to think about something like, what is this? What, what is this something that knowing that you would fail doing, but you would learn a lot? So what is there something out there that, that you could do knowing you would essentially fail in the result, but you would learn a lot? And that's what I call about failing forward and experimenting and failing. And a lot of business leaders don't do that enough. And COVID is just such the best time to do that. Like this is a great time to actually promote someone who you haven't promoted yet to get someone to take the reins to launch a new product to try a new market because what's the downside i mean it's it's pretty bad economically anyway if it comes off that's fantastic if it doesn't there's probably no downside so that was another one about experimenting and to give you an idea about this a guy called tom burton uh, who won the gold medal in the laser class yachting in rio you know tom won that gold medal in the last race using a maneuver on the start line that he learned as a 10 year old on the lakes in new south wales and it's from play that we get to learn so much from playing and playing in his boat and working out and he could just sail his yacht backwards faster than anybody else that was basically the tip and he was able to get himself out of a situation put his competitor into a situation and allowed him tactically to move up and win but it's play and i say that to people who run sales teams i say give your people license you know try a different opening line try a different method of marketing do something that's different but learn from the experience have what i call a failure meeting 
And failure meetings are really important in sport as they are in business. Failure meetings, if you held them on a weekly or monthly basis, is a really successful entrepreneurial trick to do to go to everybody. You've got to come along to a failure meeting on Friday, but everyone has to come along and have done something that didn't work, right? You can't come along and laugh at everybody else, right? You've got to go, hey, this is what we tried, just didn't work. And it can be all sorts of manner of things but you accelerate the learning inside the business really fast. And there that, that are some of the things I've learned from elite sports people. They fail a lot to get the success they get. Sure. And I, I know that also brings us back to the importance of measuring success and a measuring effort against goals. What have you learned where measuring yourself and accountability makes a difference? Yeah, I'm a big fan of, of metrics, a ma- massive fan of metrics and data, because I think it's a great quote, uh, you and I have had a bit of experience in Silicon Valley, Bill, and Jim Barksdale is a great veteran of Silicon Valley. And he's got a great quote, which is, you know, if we've got data, let's use the data. If we don't, let's use opinions and let's go with mine because it's the best one, you know, and it's a great quote. And it's so true from so many leaders who, if they haven't got the data, then they're going to go with their own view. And so data always trumps politics. So I think it's really important in business, especially if you're trying to get an idea up with somebody who's maybe pushing you back and saying, you know, don't do that. We can't do it because of, or woulda, coulda, shoulda, or, you know, I'll tell you why we can't rather than why we can. Data is great for that. So I'm a huge one in going, what are the metrics that matter? You don't need a lot. You know, people use a lot of, you know, CRMs and the like these days. And I'm a big fan of those, but you don't need more than about five dashboards to look at. You know, good analytics is fantastic. You've got to know what you're wanting for. You've got to know what the future state looks like. What's current state? What's future state? And what are the goalposts along the way to check if you're on track, off track? Just like any good coach from any type of sport in the world, the best coaches are the best halftime coaches. The ones who come out with the plan, but at halftime go, you know what? We didn't know they were going to play that person. We didn't know that was going to happen over there. Now we're changing up the plan. So I find that having really understanding your metrics is just, it just gives you confidence to understand if you're making the right moves and what was the impact of that. And we've got so much data we can get now. Sense making is that is the kind of the buzzword around, which I think is a good one, which is, you know, well, let's make sense of all the data now because we've got so much data. What data do we need? What's relevant at this time? And I do a lot of cycling, as I mentioned before, and you know, the data that comes off my bike and myself and goes straight to a coach in the cloud is just phenomenal. Sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't like it, but, but the reality is I've got the data. It really helps bring together some remarkable occurrences when you add these qualities to the mix. In your book, you talk about Mad Max. Can you talk about how these guys got together and what they did in order to create the Mel Gibson movie? Yeah, so the movie was was written by uh, George Miller, who's done all the Mad Max uh, movies, and a guy and his partner at the time called Byron Kennedy. And it came together because George, as a lot of people don't know, George is actually a GP. He's actually a doctor. He was an emergency sur- emergency uh, ward surgeon, and that's where he got the inspiration about all the car accidents he was seeing behind the movie. And and he had a passion for small for movies and just uh, homemade movies and small you know independent movies. And that's how he met Byron Kennedy, and they just had a passion for making independent movies. They got together. They came up with the concept of Mad Max, and there's some much stuff about leadership here because while they had the vision they knew they needed the people and so the very first place they went to was um, a place called NIDA which is the um, National Institute of Dramatic Arts in Sydney and has had Baz Luhrmann's come through there from Mad, you know from Mel Gibson to all sorts of great actors out of Australia have been to NIDA and they went to NIDA and spoke to the director of NIDA and said this is what we've got in mind and he said yeah I got a I got a couple of people that, that could might fit this and that's when he um, brought into his office a young Mel, very young Mel Gibson and a very young Steve Bisley. And Steve Bisley tells the story. They thought they were in trouble because he and, he and uh, Mel were always getting in trouble at NIDA. And I brought in by the director and they met George and, and Byron and they shared the, the vision. And 
Steve Bisley says that he read the script that night and he said, as a motorcycle rider, and he read the script and said, I just, this is just me. And he played the role of Goose in the movie and Mel read it, had the same passion as well. And, and that's, where it, that's where it took off from. So that's how it came together. So there's the vision of what they did in terms of um, George Miller and Byron. But then the next thing they did was create an inspired vision where who could they share the vision with and who could help them shape that vision because they'd never done a big movie like this. And they then went, the next hire they did was a very strategic one. So they had a couple of young leads who were passionate and hungry, but hadn't done a lot of work in movies, real commercial movies at that point. And the person they brought in was a guy by the name of Hugh Keysburn. And Hugh Keysburn uh, was a um, West End London trained theatrical actor. Um, living in Sydney, who had done, who had you know trodden the boards, he'd done the movies, and they brought him in, and he played he played the toe cutter, which was the the rebel biker in the movie, and he actually did a lot of work on that movie, not for any additional money. He just put his view in it. He, he got involved in it. He was passionate about it. He built the team. I mean, in fact, he he, he recruited all the, the kind of rebel bikers together, and he used to have parties with them, and then break into character. And the movie was actually filmed in Melbourne, Australia. But they were all based up in Sydney. And so Hugh Keysburn got the whole Rebel motorcycle group, and many, many people don't know this, to actually get in all their, their costume gear. And they all were motorcycle riders because no one could afford the bikes. They all, they all had to bring their bikes along. So they all rode their motorcycles from Sydney to Melbourne in all their Mad Max gear. And Hugh Keysburn says, he said, so many times I was frightened I'd take a corner wrong and that damn tomahawk would come out and kill me before I got to Melbourne. So they would literally come into towns dressed like this. Can you believe it? Uh, but that was getting into character and he was teaching a whole lot of young actors how to do it. And it's such a remarkable story. And I think that one of the other things I love about the story is that both George Miller and Byron Kennedy, unfortunately, was killed doing a location shoot in a helicopter just after that movie was made, which is unfortunate. But George went on to make them, including the last one with uh, Charlize Theron. But the antagonistic Immortan Joe, the, the, the big rebel, was played again 40 years later by Hugh Keysburn. And I think that just shows that friendship, admiration that George had way back in the early days when they made it to give Hugh Keysburn the, the role many, many years later, which he again carried off brilliantly. One of the things that I love about this story, about how this all came together, is it really shows you get all in on the culture and the values and making it work. And there's nothing like unleashing the growth potential and performance of your team, like they did with this troop of actors, like going on an adventure and riding your bikes and stopping in the local grocery store, you know, for Gatorade when you're in full gear and you're in character. I mean, that just is such a bonding experience. I, I just crack up thinking about it. It's, it's very funny. And I think the other thing that was really good was that George and Byron, you know, they lifted cameras, they pulled the gear along. And uh, another thing, if you if people do get to see the movie, I hope they do, it was a different name in the US when it came out. But one of the things in there was there was a scene where the a car drives right through a caravan. So a caravan is doing a turn, does a U-turn in the road, and the police car chasing one of the other rebels in, on a, in a car drives right through the caravan, smashes the caravan apart. Well, that was one take because that was George Miller's family caravan. <laughs> that was his own caravan. I don't know if he told his parents he was borrowing it, but that was literally he said, you've got to hit this thing and hit it right. And it's got to explode at the right time because that's our only caravan. So I want all the small business leaders listening to this episode to think, how exciting is your mission? Are people offering to volunteer to participate and learn new things just because you have that type of exciting environment? Are your people really empowered to be able to try things and fail things that might not work out? Because when you do succeed, you get extraordinary results. As we just talked about in this movie, Rob's insights into this 
I hope inspire you to think about how you could open things up just a little bit to really connect with people and get them to give their all. Are your people taking those kinds of risks to deliver the results that you're asking for in your business? If not, there's room to grow. There's room to expand. There's room to add this type of creativity and excitement as we've just talked about here. And Bill, I've got a, just a really small one I can tell you from a client of mine who's actually been very intentional about this. He's a small business owner in the IT and T space. And he's so intentional about this, Bill. What he does on a monthly basis, 20% of his team's work must be spent on experiential green fields, blue sky opportunities with customers. So they go to customers and they say to their customers, what would you do if you didn't, if you had all the money, what would you do to experiment in the cloud, to change something in an IT and T space? What would you do? And they work with their customers. They, oh, I'd love to do that. And they go, you know what? Let's do it together. We'll do it for free for you because we'd love to learn and you get to try something. And what they like to do after six months, they like to turn 10% of that 20% into business as usual ongoing revenue. Can you think of an example of something that they tried and succeeded that actually made a difference? Was it a different way to process maybe customer hookups or was it solving a problem within the business that it was enabled by those conversations and that time spent? I can, I'll just phrase it on that a little bit around the place because it was done for a major airline they work with and they were able to change up the way the e-commerce transaction was done from a customer base. So it was like a JetBlue example, um, but they the client that had a kind of off the shelf, if you can, e-commerce solution for taking bookings, it was very expensive to modify. And so these guys actually partnered, but they, but they had an idea around a promotion, a coupon promotion they wanted to do, but it was going to be expensive and they did it. So they worked together on this with this very large organization and it made a huge difference a huge difference. It actually did work. So the experiment was a bit of risk from the, from the client, the airline, and a bit of obviously risk from uh, my client who did it. But the upside was fantastic. But you know, the interesting thing about it, Bill, is that the loyalty, you could be a large um, consulting firm, try and pitch that at airline, and you'll never win. You'll never win because you didn't take the risks that my client did and you weren't in there and sweating it out and having a go and, and experimenting and failing forward that my client did. And that's, you know, while they weren't paid for doing that, the loyalty they've got and the ongoing revenue is unbelievable. Now I can imagine. Rob, are you ready for the Mike Quest for the Best lightning round? I am so psyched for this, Bill. It's taken you, why has it taken so long? I've been really looking forward to this. Well, I will tease you no further. We are here now. Earlier, I asked you about a person growing up and you got to talk about Bill Curry. When you were in your teenage years, what's a song you found inspiring? Oh my God, there were so many through my teenage years that I would uh, found inspiring. In fact, probably one of the most inspiring one was a song by an Australian band called uh, I Was Only 19 by a band called Red Gum out of South Australia. And the reason why I loved it was about Viet the Vietnam War. And Red Gum was so true to their, their social values that they had this song it was the biggest ever hit they ever, ever had. And they donated all the money to the Vietnam vets. Even in this time of COVID, what's the most effective way you find to get the word out about your mission each week to tell people that it's all possible? One of the things I'm doing at the moment is bringing to life all the quotes that I have in the book. And there's a lot of quotes in the book, as you probably noticed, but I'm bringing out a, thing, a little segment on video called Stories of Possibility. And the Stories of Possibility are little two-minute videos done on the quote and why I used it and what the story is behind that quote and why it's important for the book. What would you say is the best $100 or so purchase you've made in the last six months? Best $100 or well, best purchase I've made in the last six months would probably be the 
new universal microphone stand that I've got for doing this podcast I'm doing with you. So I've just got a new Rode mic and that's a bit more than $100, but the stand for it was about $100. And that's been absolutely brilliant in terms of just, just making my life a lot easier during COVID. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Uh, I, I've got a thing in the book I talk about the voices in your head. We oftentimes we have negative voices in your head. And so one of the things I've been able to do is identify those voices in my head and one voice in particular, which is a very negative voice. I've been able to name that, isolate it. And one of the things I've been able to work out is when that voice appears more than any other time. And so what I've been able to do is pick that time and then do something different. So I know it's coming or it might come at a certain time and I'm able to address that very quickly and observe it and address it and move on. It's all possible. The book you wrote about the high performance hero. What's a mistake or misunderstanding that a lot of people have about being a high performer that you'd like to correct now? I think the mistake that people have is they don't believe they can be a high performer. They believe that's for other people. That's for people they read about and they see on the media or they see in social media, especially, and they don't believe they can do it. But every high performer I know is just a person like them that all started with a desire, a passion, and then the discipline that, that goes with it. But that's the biggest thing I would say is they're just regular human beings. And that's kind of why I wrote it. Well, Rob, you've shared so many great ideas with us on my quest for the best. I want to thank you so much. You started off and introduced us to Bill Curry, who was an all around high performer in his life that inspired you when you were growing up, inspired you about yachting, inspired you about being a business leader, and really helped you develop and find that early that sense of what is it that he would do and looking to emulate that in your life. I'd love how you talked about having the vision strategy in action, but if your mindset sucks, then things aren't going to go the way you want or they're not going to go as quickly as you want. And if you have a, an effective mindset, a positive mindset, a growth mindset that's open to change, well, it helps make things happen so much quicker in real business terms. You talked about the possibility zone where people realize that things are possible and then embrace it as part of what they can do. So it's not just possible in the abstract, but it's possible for you to do what it is you dream of. We talked about the three D's of intentionality, desire, discipline, and determination. And then Elisa Kamplin, who was the Olympic aerial skiing champ, and she was able to really share some interesting plans and ways that she approached it where she really had that intentionality and only came to her sport after a lot of searching and was able to succeed with that. That was very inspiring. You talked about the importance of having failure meetings. And though it may make listeners shudder to hear that, it leads to good results and it really desensitizes you to the stigma of failing. And then we talked about Mad Max, the movie that really came together with Mel Gibson and showed how people got behind this idea and because they had love, they had such buy-in, it really brought out extraordinary talents and dedication and effects that never would have occurred if people hadn't been so bought into the culture and allowed their passion to flourish in that environment. So for these and so many more reasons, Rob Hartnett, author of It's All Possible, How to Lead an Epic Life and Unleash the High Performance Hero Within You, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. No problem, Bill. Fantastic. And Rob, before we say goodbye for now, where's a place we can find out more about you and your work online? Oh, the best place is just my website, Bill. So it's Rob Hartnett. So that's R-O-B-H-A-R-T-N-E-T-T dot -T com.
Well, Rob, we're going to link to your website as well as the book link on the Amazon store, as well as all your social media to make it easy for people to find you and stay up to date with your work with It's All Possible in helping business leaders succeed and envision a larger life for themselves. Fantastic, Bill. Really enjoyed the interview. You're very, very good at it. And uh, I really hope to hear from your listeners some point in the future. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.